The Guardian. It's a milestone. It's, it's just the start. It really is just the start. It's the first time we've had collisions at this uh, very high centre of mass energy. But really, there's, there's a huge amount still to do. We're really on the start of the road uh, of discovery. Hello, this is Science Weekly. I'm Nell Bowes. On this week's podcast, what are they thinking? We take a peek inside the minds of animals and ask, do dogs get offended and do fish feel pain? With monkeys, if they're both handed slices of cucumber, they happily receive them. But if you start giving one of them desirable grapes, which which are a real treat for them, and the other one continues to get a cucumber, he or she will throw it aside or hand it back or expect the equitable treatment. The Large Hadron Collider makes history again. If we don't find anything like dark matter or even things like the Higgs boson or all these wonderful theories that theorists have been dreaming about for for years. If we don't find any of that, that just means, right, well, something might be wrong with gravity. And that's a a big if. So what's next for CERN? We speak to one of those who'll be scouring the data. Plus, how effective is YouTube for debunking science myths? Some people don't like the fact that I attack Al Gore. I I wouldn't say I attack him, I just dispute uh, the things that he says because they're not in line with the scientific consensus. This is Science Weekly from The Guardian. Now we're beginning this podcast by exploring the mind and emotions of animals. Jonathan Balcom used to be an animal behaviour researcher with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine in Washington, D.C. His latest book, Second Nature, The Inner Lives of Animals, is out now. It explores all things to do with animals, their sensitivity, their emotions, intelligence, whether they're aware, how they communicate, whether they have virtue. The Guardian's James Randerson spoke to him. There's been a scientific revolution going on in the last two or three decades. Through much of the 20th century, it was taboo to ask questions about what animals think and what they feel. And fortunately, that's changed. It's an exciting time to study animal behavior. And now we have a spate of studies on these phenomena that show that animals are, in all the important ways, sentient in the manner that we are. They they may not lead the same sorts of lives that we have, but the key element here, in my view, is that they feel pleasures and pains just as intensely as we do. They have just as acute emotional experience as we do. Um, There are studies showing that animals are aware, that they're cognitive, uh, that there's a real inner life to these animals uh, that we haven't really been appreciating in the past. So that's the sort of the showcase part of my book where I showcase these scientific discoveries peppered with anecdotes and stories. Um, And then the ethical take-home message as well, as you said, what does it say about our relationship to animals? The paradox is that, is that as our knowledge of animals increases, uh, our, our treatment of them falls further behind because we still live according to a sort of a might-makes-right strategy, which is the kind of thinking that justified colonialism and slavery and the subjugation of women's rights and civil rights in the past. And we've made great strides in relegating those wrongs to the history books. But today, unfortunately, our treatment of animals remains pretty much medieval. And so my book is also a plea to the reader and to the, general, the humanity in general to... Uh, 
strive for a new relationship to animals, an animal, a relationship that's less consumptive and more respectful. The sort of showcase part of the book is packed with examples. Well, uh, one of the first ones you talk about are the the chickens and their aesthetic preferences. I'm going to just to get a flavour of some of these examples. Perhaps you could talk us through that particular experiment. Sure. It's a study published in a, a journal, uh, and the title of the paper, which was originally going to be the title of my book, is is Chickens Prefer Beautiful Humans. And it was a study done in which um, human faces were photographed and digitized so they could be presented in sort of a range of, uh, of faces. And uh, they were presented to undergraduate students, and the undergraduate students rated them for attractiveness. Male faces were rated by female students, and female faces were rated by male students. And so they came up with sort of a gr gradation of what was most and least attractive. And then chickens were presented with the same range of faces. And uh, strikingly, chickens, f for whatever reason, and that could be discussed as to what was going on in the chickens' minds, but their ratings, uh, their preferences in binary choices, one face versus another, were about 98% overlap with the human human raters. So an astonishing uh, overlap and similarity in aesthetic race, uh, rating. Now, again, it doesn't necessarily mean that chickens found those faces more attractive. I, I don't know. I think that was what the authors suggest. Um, but whether that, what kind of meaning that has in terms of a chicken's world, I don't know. But what it does say to me is that A, they're very, very perceptive uh, about cues. And B, those, those perceptions are, are very similar to ours in terms of aesthetics. It's very easy to extrapolate from anecdotes or small studies because, you know, to, to use a slightly analogous uh, situation, people tend to see sort of faces in clouds or hear voices in drafts in drafty buildings. You know, we are very good at anthropomorphizing our surroundings. And um, clearly there's been, a, as you say, a revolution in our understanding of um, the, the cognitive abilities of animals and all sorts of things that people you know a century ago didn't think didn't even consider animals were capable of they are but whether that's really the same thing as human emotions in the same way we would understand them i think is a very open question isn't it sure let me give an example of, of emo an emotional study that's based on rigorous science it's, it's a study of uh, chakma baboons and these animals these particular populations have been studied in botswana for 30 years by the same scientists so it's, it's sort of like the jane goodall type science where you have longitudinal data long-term observational and 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 experimental type studies with animals in the wild in their own milieu um it's known that women who lose an infant, uh, it's a terrible, traumatic, sad event, and they um, they grieve uh, naturally, and they and that that grief is reflected physiologically by an increase in glucocorticoid hormones in their blood for a month or more, and. Um, these baboons show a similar pattern of behavior. If a baboon mother out there in the uh, Okavango Delta of Botswana loses her baby, um, the scientists are able to measure the uh, the hormone levels in her blood in a very non-invasive way. They don't have to draw blood. They simply keep an eye and they see uh, when the female defecates somewhere, you know, oh, Lucy just shat, go get that. And they run over and pick it up and they can do analyses on the, on the um, feces that show that their hormone levels also increase and their glucocorticoid levels go up for about a month. A very, very similar pattern. Their closest associates are the female baboons with whom they relate to and have friendships with. There's sort of an osmotic effect. Their, their hormone levels also go up. And again, in parallel with humans, in, in the human case, we, we rally around, we support each other, we increase our, we increase our social networks. And um, the baboons show a similar, a similar pattern. They, uh, females who've lost an infant will groom more during that next month and receive more grooming. And it's thought to be sort of a, a form of a therapy to help uh, overcome the grief that presumably they're experiencing. So, you know, this is the challenge with emotions. They're private feelings. And this is one of the reasons why science didn't, did neglect these questions for a long 
time, it was ruled as scientifically inaccessible. So, you know, don't even ask those questions because we can't go there. Well, actually, we, science is, is incredibly innovative and we can come up with ways to probe the depths of what animals may be thinking and feeling. And ultimately, it's private experiences. But then, James, your experiences are private to me. I, I can only uh, be empathic or guess what, you know, if I say I'm, I share your pain or I feel your pain, I'm, I'm being empathic. I'm not literally feeling your pain. So that challenge also extends between humans. And yet we do not question the, the sentience of our fellow human beings. Do animals have any kind of moral responsibility? Uh, absolutely. In fact, it's, it's sort of the, one of the frontiers of, um, of science is, is, is this study of virtue in animals. Uh, and increasingly it's coming to light that to, to, to somewhat twist your question, because you said moral responsibility, and that's maybe a bit different than what I'm about to, to describe, um, but certainly a moral awareness or a, a moral consideration about how they behave. And this is particularly the case with social animals, animals who've evolved to live in groups. And living in groups is full of compromise. You know, you you give and take and you want to sustain good relationships with others. If you don't, you may be an outcast and that's usually not your in your self-interest anyway. So you, one can make genetic arguments for, for the evolution of, of virtue and moral behavior and certainly we manifest it in many ways. Um, but for instance, a recent study of dogs shows that uh, dogs have what's called um, inequity aversion. That is to say, they, they have sort of a fairness awareness. If you offer a hand to shake a paw with two dogs and they're standing next to each other, and each time you shake the, their paw, uh, one dog gets a treat for shaking the paw and the other one doesn't get a treat. Well, after about 10 or 12 trials, the one who's not getting a treat will refuse to shake the paws, uh, whereas the other one will continue happily to shake paws. Um, and uh, control experiments where there's no other dog there, the, the dog not getting any treat will continue shaking the paw, paw much longer. So it's not just fatigue or frustration. There actually there's this sort of awareness that, hey, this is not correct. This one's getting uh, rewarded for what, I'm do what, what he's doing, and I'm not getting rewarded for what I'm doing, the same thing. Similar with monkeys, if they're, handed, if they're both handed slices of cucumber, they happily receive them. But if you start giving one of them des desirable grapes, which are, which are a real treat for them, and the other one continues to get a cucumber, he or she will throw it aside or hand it back or expect the equitable treatment but aren't those kind of behaviors just part of a, an inner sort of selfishness they're not you know it doesn't necessarily mean that those animals are sort of altruistic or have morals yeah you could it? argue it's it's ultimately selfish you could argue a lot of our behavior is ultimately selfish in the sense that it is it, it ultimately will serve us uh, either through kin selection or or reciprocal altruism to again use some scientific jargon but there's also a lot of examples of altruistic behavior in in nature where animals incur individuals incur an individual sacrifice to make a certain behavior um, which is beneficial to the group a, a great example is alarm calling and this is quite widespread in birds and mammals I talk about um, some birds using this but also mammals like prairie dogs you know these middle-sized rodents they have a sophisticated alarm calling system so do chickens and it's a semantic system where specific calls denote specific types of predators and specific calls and predators denote uh, result in a, in a specific behavior that's adaptive to that. For instance, if an eagle's flying over their prairie dog colony, there's a particular call given and any prairie dog who hears the call and knows it will run immediately to the hole and go down the burrow because you want to be out of the way. They're the most dangerous predator with the possible exception of a human with a gun, which incidentally they have a distinctive call for a human carrying a gun. They also have a, a call for coyotes, which engenders a different response, run to the burrow, stay at the entrance and just 
look around alertly. If it's a domestic dog, well, they're a little more predictable and less dangerous, so just stand alert and watch where you are. And these, of course, these studies are done by doing playback experiments where they record the calls and, and play them back. But they even have uh, up to 100 modifiers for these calls, which denote different colors, different shapes, different sizes. Again, if somebody is walking through with or without a gun, for obvious reasons, it's useful to know the difference between those two scenarios. <laughs> yes. Um, do plants have an intrinsic value? You know, I, my broad philosophy is a little bit like um, Albert Schweitzer, who, who, who advocated a, an idea of reverence for life. You know, he coined that phrase in 1915, and I love that, that phrase. And it speaks to plants because plants are, of course, also living organisms. Uh, there's not really any science to support, or very little. Some would argue they're sentient. We can quibble about whether plants are sentient. Most scientists would say they're not. But even if they are sentient, we ought to respect them. Um, and that, that relates to the broader issue of our relationship to animals, because people often ask me as a vegetarian, and myself, and a vegan, in fact, they they ask me, um, "What about plants? You know, if you're a vegetarian, you're you're consuming plants, but if you're if you're a meat eater, you're indirectly consuming many more plants because, of course, you're eating higher on the food chain. And cows have to eat plants to make muscle, and um, so it, being uh, being a vegetarian is is uh, is a, a more plant friendly way of life anyway. So I believe in respecting all life. Yeah, up, absolutely. I mean, I I don't I don't want to see trees uprooted any more than I want to see cows slaughtered. But there is a moral difference because a cow is sentient and the plant is not. I, I want to come on to this um, issue of where this sort of new knowledge takes us in your view in terms of our relationship, our moral relationship with animals in particular. Um, I mean, in the book, there's a, a quite a colourful way into this, actually, where you, you talk about um, that, that scene from the Monty Python's Holy Grail. Perhaps you could just talk us through that and why you think it's relevant. Yeah, that's the introduction to the last part of the book, and uh, I, I do indulge myself. I read, I read that passage to a, a high school class a couple of days ago. Uh, it was a writer's workshop, and uh, one of the braver students took me to task a little bit for over-quoting from that section. But if anyone's seen uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, there's a scene with uh, a couple of serfs who are out in the countryside slinging earth, uh, slinging mud around, just doing some menial task, filthy. Um, and King Arthur rides along, well, he's not riding, he's got someone with coconuts uh, sounding like a horse, and uh, it comes up and it wants to find out who's knight, which knight lives in yonder castle, and the, the two serfs um, start to get into a dialogue with him, and it turns out they're, they're experts on, on social politics and social dynamics and justice and things like that, and the king gets very irritated at them and just telling them to shut up. And I see this as a sort of a, a metaphor for the human-animal relationship Relationship. Um, we're the kings and they're the serfs and for a long time now we've been sitting in our throne uh, having them do what we want them to do and treating them as, as our, our will dictates and, and it's not long ago that we were treating other humans that way colonialism and slavery I think I may have mentioned those earlier but uh, certainly those those sorts of past wrongs were, were justified um, because we were more important, we're more intelligent, we, we matter, we're the only ones that really matter. So um, it, the Monty, I don't think Monty Python intended that to be a metaphor for our relationship to animals and humans, but certainly good literature and good humor can be a metaphor for these other things. Is there any form of a kind of hierarchy of sentiments that, that you recognize? I mean, it, would it be okay to do certain things with, say, fish as opposed to, um, you know, monkeys or apes it's an important question i mean sentience is is not an absolute in the sense well let's say there's there's gradients of sentience i'm sure there are gradients of sentience there, there's certain levels of being able to perceive and feel things just as our sensory systems vary you know some species have more acute visual uh, ability than we do and a more better sense of smell and better say spatial memory as well so you know uh, 
but uh, so we can argue about where we draw the line and the sort of a draw the line type of type of issue is you know who do we include who do we exclude amoebas they're technically qualified as animals but i don't believe they're sentient uh cockroaches we might start to debate that a little bit uh what i think is key though is there's a number of animals we can put definitely and clearly above the line of of the sort of sentience that really matters uh, the capacity to feel things similarly to the way we are and we know how sentient we are we know how much it hurts to hammer our thumb or stick a needle into our body um even though a lot of people seem to like doing that um so we know we're sentient so it's really an exercise in empathy uh, is is recognizing that 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 warthog or that chicken or whatever animal you want to pick i mean if it's a mammal and bird absolutely i think we're talking about similar levels of sentience we could argue about uh, reptiles and amphibians and fishes i do want to mention something about fishes um there's so often you know dismissed as cartesian automatons and and thoughtless unthinking cold-blooded brutes that don't really well not even brutes they're not even worthy of the word brute they're just they're just fish <laughs> and i think they have the disadvantage of not having facial expressions that w- at least not that we recognize um well, slightly gormless ones you know, you know to our eyes i suppose to our eyes they seem yeah. slightly gormless but you know what so do dolphins dolphins don't look gormless to our eyes we know they've got bigger brains than we have and yet they have fixed facial expressions too and that's one of the common anthropomorphisms uh, where we go astray we, oh the dolphin's happy because he's smiling but of course they can't change that sort of facial expression they can express emotions in other ways among each other with body postures and such but we're not so good at reading that and of course they have a sophisticated um, vocal communication system fishes you know just on the surface no pun intended fishes don't look particularly sentient but there's a new book just came out last week called do fish feel pain by a fish biologist who's an expert in the, in them and she concludes that they certainly can and uh, as a fellow evolutionary biologist james i mean uh, you know you probably would appreciate the value of being able to feel pain for a motile organism an organism that can move away now okay gr- granted amoebas are also motile they can move um but when you know fishes have a lot more they have nervous tissue and they have the same sorts of senses we have and and there are studies that show they have long-term memory that that, that they show physiological and behavioral responses to painful stimuli having uh, acetic acid injected into their lips trout will stop feeding for hours unless or until they're given an ant- antidote to that and then they'll start feeding again. Um, so these sorts of things are, are pretty compelling evidence that they can feel pain. And, and my doctrine with this sort of question, the difficult questions about animal sentience, is that if there's doubt, we, sh- we ought to give it, grant them the benefit of the doubt rather than the other way around, which is what we've tended to be doing. That was Jonathan Balcom speaking to The Guardian's James Randerson. Jonathan's book, Second Nature, is out now. Do you agree that animals have a passion for life? Could you give up meat? Tell us what you think through our Facebook group. Just search for The Guardian Science Weekly Podcast. You can also chat with other listeners and post comments on the wall. And we'll message you every Monday when a new programme is available to download. Science Weekly from guardian.co.uk And now, the Large Hadron Collider is finally up to speed. Yep, the most complex scientific instrument in the world is beginning its long search for new particles, forces and extra dimensions of space. The machine is designed to collide beams of protons with a combined energy of 14 trillion electron volts. We had a full start 18 months ago. Then the LHC started colliding protons at low energies in November. Now we're up to half speed and look set to keep on that till the end of 2011. So these 7 tera-electron volt collisions mean that the LHC is now three times more energetic than the US Tevatron Collider near Chicago. 
To help guide us through the experiment, we've got Tom Winty from Imperial College in the studio. Hello, Tom. Hello. Now, you're a third-year PhD student. You're working on the compact muon solenoid experiment. Uh, it's one of those giant digital cameras that's going to take pictures of the particles colliding inside the LHC. You were watching when we finally got up to half speed last week. How was it? Um, it was... Uh, I mean, it was obviously a, a great moment. Um, I mean, I was... <laughs> I was actually at a, at a conference at the time, uh, a particle physics conference, and I was largely following on, on Twitter, actually. So now we're up to interesting speed. Um, wh- why is this a significant milestone? Why is everybody so excited about this particular getting to this energy? So a lot was made last week of how it was a historic moment in, in uh, particle physics, and it, it really was. I mean, if you, if you look back through um, you know, the last century's achievements in, in physics. Particle physics really sort of kicked off as a, as a discipline in, the, in the, the 40s and 50s. It was a real sort of, it was a gentleman adventurer type subject where you, you, to find new particles, you had to do sort of crazy things. You had to like send um, photographic emulsions up on balloons into the atmosphere and then wait for them to land somewhere. And that's how you analyze collisions like that. And, and people would find these, these cosmic rays, the tracks left by those and found new particles like that. You had people going on, expeditions to the the andes and, and up mountains taking these photographic plates to to get closer to to where these cosmic rays are coming down the problem is with that you, you don't know what is uh your input from that you don't know where the cosmic rays have come from so uh physicists are all about control and and and, and knowing what what goes in and, and that's when people start to build colliders um like the hadron collider now it used to be you could fit one of these things on a, on a desk <laughs> on, a, on a lab and you had these little things and it would whiz round around around um and uh, they just got sort of gradually bigger and bigger. But what they found when uh, they smashed particles together, they found um, whole new families of these particles. They found loads. And um, there was a, a real genuine concern uh, in the physics community that um, physics would, would turn into biology, uh, essentially, and that you'd, you'd have all these species of particles that no one has you'd have to sort of label them and do the sort of taxonomy and the genus lines you know and, and no one wants to do that really no 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 one um no one en- enjoys that so at least in physics um what you want is you want nice simple explanations of and patterns in in, in nature and um the experimentalists had the edge we we had the data off you go guys off you go theorists explain what's going on and which they did and did and did beautifully but the point is now we're we're back Back where we were in the, the 50s back and 60s. Back in the experimentalist stream. Having the, we are, yeah, we are, as we speak now, uh, producing data that theorists just don't have a clue about. They've got, they've got ideas and they've got models and, and, and theories, but um, what's nice, as, as an experimentalist myself, is that we have this stuff that uh, we'll be able to say, look, this is what we're finding. So what are you finding at the moment? Tell us what you're working on particularly. The analysis I'm involved in at the particular search is um, for uh, dark matter. It is one of the, the, the greatest mysteries of, of, of modern physics. Cosmology, um, so people looking in their telescopes and satellite telescopes and, and all, all sorts of things, uh, tells us that if, if gravity works as we think it does, there should be more stuff than we can actually see. So how, is your, how are you finding that? Well, it's 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 very much uh, relies on the good old uh, E equals mc squared. Um, if we've got enough energy, um, we can uh, create new particles that have mass. Now, for for this uh, these mass calculations to add up in terms of the universe, these particles have to ha- have a have a mass, um, and it's by definition it's a mass that we haven't. It's greater than what we've been able to see before. So the hope is that we we create enough energy in our proton proton collisions to 
uh, yeah, create these, this, this dark matter stuff. So rather than it just existing in the, in the universe around us or in, in, in galaxies as, as we think it's clustered, we're actually making it. But how do you detect it? Ah, well, this is the, the, this is the, the, the golden question. Um, by definition, you can't. Quite. Uh, of course, it sort of it would um, pass straight through through our detectors, um, and this is why the uh, experiment, the, the Large Hadron Collider approach, is is crucial in this point because we we know what went in. We know we had two protons uh, at uh, three and a half tera electron volts each. Um, we know that uh, energy is conserved. So we we know we know that nothing should disappear we, according to the, the laws of physics. I mean, if that's broken, we're we're in trouble. Um, <laughs> that's a whole <laughs> on, on lot of question. Yeah. Well, this is it. And, um, but we, you know, we've got to be open to it. It's, uh, that's part, part of the fun of science. So if stuff does appear to disappear... Um, so if there's some energy you can't find, yes. then that's presumably the yes. dark matter that you're looking yes. for. Yes. Um, it, it, and the, I mean, we know there are particles that, that do disappear as well, like uh, neutrinos, these kind of ghostly particles that the standard model, um, they're incorporated in the standard model and we, we have discovered already. Um, but the point is, if, if more disappears than we think, according to those uh, predictions, then uh, we'll f- have a hint at saying, right, something else is going on here um, and that's when we ask for the next collider um, <laughs> and, and, and some more money please. a bigger machine what does what you're working on actually look like what's the what does the data what, what is it um so yeah it's um it's, it's a good question and, and and part of the the challenge and the, the fun of the next few months will be really understanding what our detectors are, are telling us so essentially you have um a sort of Lots of different types of detection equipment, sort of silicon chips, sort of a bit similar to what you've got in your, your mobile phone camera sort of thing. Um, you have uh, calorimeters, which, which measure the, the energy that all the, the, the particles uh, leave and, and various other types. And these generate uh, electric signals, which then get processed by um, big sort of boards of electronics and what have you. And then this gets all filtered out. And uh, essentially, yeah, you, you get these little... gets to the ones and zeros formats and then you have uh, reconstruction software which um, essentially is pattern recognition and and that's a big challenge of of analyzing this data is it's looking for patterns looking for the the right thing and again to look back at this in the context of history um, what used to happen is that they would literally take photos of of, of the collisions you would have um, photographic plates and you'd have then people taking these photos and, and analysing them, you know, measuring them with, with rulers and looking at the, the tracks and the, the, you know, the tracks. And looking at the different sparks of light and measuring the path exactly. of the and, particle. And, and now we do that all by computer. And that's uh, one of the major challenges. It's not just um, analysing the data, looking for the right patterns or what we think are the right patterns, and we don't even know if they're the right patterns. Right? This, is why, this is why it's completely new, new territory and, and, and so exciting. Um, but we've... Just the sheer volume of that data. Um, what, in fact, one of the biggest challenges is even working out whether what you've seen is interesting or not. Because we so can't do you get a three-dimensional image of a sort of a, a, a first pass at where each particle or fractional went, and then you have to sort of work out if that's plausible. You take as a given that it's uh, plausible in the sense that hopefully that's what your detector is doing. Yes, you you get a a 3D reconstruction of uh, of what happened, what what sort of showers of of particles appeared or or what happened. But then um, the the trick is, yeah, developing the the clever uh, software that says, hmm, this one's good, keep it. This one's not so good, chuck it away. Because we we can't save all all of these pictures to disk. Um, That's... uh, Really? Another issue. It's actually just a, a data storage problem. Um, I like to think of it as a challenge, uh, <laughs> as, a, as an opportunity rather, rather than a problem. Um, part of the trick is, is, yeah, working out which ones are, 
that are interesting that you then store and then and then send out. And this, there's this um, huge effort to develop something called the grid, um, which is this distributed uh, data network of, of computing. And and so we you can't physically store it or keep it all at CERN. And there are sites around the world, including at Fermilab, where our our rival is. Hopefully they'll they'll look after it properly. Um, Anyway, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, but they, they, that then goes all over the world and is, is analysed um, wherever. And and some people are saying, you know, maybe this is the the next uh, World Wide Web thing, in, in that. Um, well, you just have a cloud computing kind of solution to your data storage problem. This is it. This is what we we did last time. The point is, we don't know. Um, but by trying to s solve these 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 challenges, um, and with hopefully some of the the best people who can do it, um. We can then take those solutions because CERN is is funded by the the public. Um, it's funded by uh, you know the UK makes a contribution that comes from from our tax, and, that, and that's why uh, you know it's so important that we do fund these things because we're constantly solving problems, huge technical problems that no one's even attempted before because we've never had to. But once those solutions are developed, we can then we can give them away for free. People can can use them, and, and then that feeds back, uh, and and hopefully sort of pays for itself almost. Oh well, watch this space. For everything you need to know about the LHC, go to guardian.co.uk slash science slash CERN. Science Weekly. For a hundred thousand years, humans have looked up at the night sky and wondered about those awesome points of light. What are they? What are they made of? How did they get there? They didn't have the technology to find out, so they guessed that magical beings had created it all. If you prefer making wild guesses instead of using observation, measurement and calculation, then here's a sealed box. Spend the next ten minutes guessing what's inside and come back again at the end of this video. Because this video doesn't cover what we guess about the universe, but what we know, and more importantly, how we know it. The key to converting climate change sceptics may not be polar bears and doomsday scenarios of submerged cities, but rather an open and honest YouTube channel. Potholer54 has managed to pull in 28,000 subscribers and his films have been watched two and a half million times. He's also known as Peter Hadfield, a former New Scientist writer and ex-BBC journalist. Two years ago, he began making videos rebutting urban myths about science that were spinning around the internet. The most viewed video on his site is one about those hacked climate change emails. The earth is cooling, carbon dioxide's good for you, and these people knew it the whole time. Wow, all the humanity. I'm not going to have time in this video to look at the bitchiness, the derogatory remarks, and the attempts to keep what the emailers regard as bad science out of the scientific literature. If you're interested in that, I'll be happy to make another video. Some university lecturers are now using his channel as part of their environmental science classes. Peter came into the Guardian studios while over from Australia, and Adam Vaughan asked the questions. It started with uh, conversations I had with neighbours who were very fundamentalist Christians, and I'm always fascinated to, to know why people are into certain religions, and, and uh, I had these conversations with them, and it, it, it ca I came to understand that they knew absolutely nothing factually about uh, things like evolution and, um, and uh, the Big Bang or anything like that. I mean, it was, it was not that they had different philosophies and different interpretations. It was just that they did not know the basic facts. Uh, they thought evolution was, for example, about one species of an animal being born from another and, and, and ludicrous things like that. 
And I thought, well, what I can do is, is um, because I'm a journalist, is, is put this into a 10-minute video to explain this to them. And this t turned into actually a series. And I put this online basically for them. Um, and it became hugely popular. The reaction was for people, a lot of whom were, were um, actually atheists who lived among Christians, and they said, thank goodness, uh, there is a, something out there that I can show to my Christian friends. Um, but also from a lot of um, Christians who, who began to understand for the first time something about science that they had never, ever been taught. Even from people who, who thanked me profusely for the fact that um, now they realized they weren't going to hell. They'd had sleepless nights over the fact they thought they were destined for hell. And, and all of a sudden they had an explanation of the world which was different to the one that they had preconceived. And, and um, the, the, the gratitude I got was quite amazing. And, and of course, then numbers grew. And it was from that a lot of people said, well, you ought to do one on climate. You did a you've done a basic sort of primer on here are the facts about climate change. Can, can you tell me a little bit about the style of your videos? Because they're quite distinct. Yes, I think the trouble with this is there is an awful lot of um, name-calling and there's a lot of taking sides. And, and one thing, when I had conversations with uh, skeptics, uh, if I could use that word, um, people who didn't accept the scientific consensus on climate change, one thing that, that, that came across was they're not, they're not stupid people. They're, they're intelligent people who are trying to understand. And they said to me, um, just tell us the basic facts. We don't want a lot of emotion. We don't want to see more b polar bears on ice caps and uh, how we're all going to drown underwater. Um, we want some basic facts about what this is and what's going to happen. So I thought, no, that's that's what's needed. That that was what I had from the the series on uh, on our creation. Um, you, you don't like the term deniers, do you? I don't you? like the term den denialists. Um, that suggests that there is a, an observable fact that could be denied, and even the IPCC would say that um, you know the certainty over climate science is around 80-90%. Uh, of course, you know that's as good as, as a lot of scientific theories get. Um, you could say it's more for evolution, perhaps um, a bit more for plate tectonics. But um, you can never ever say that a scientific theory is an absolute fact and that it's undeniable because once you start doing that, science becomes a dogma and an orthodoxy. And, and so I'm against that. And you do, you do get a lot of emails and messages from people. I mean, you're you're not you're not preaching to the converted, are you, Peter? I mean, I'd be interested. What what sort of what are they saying? What are they yes, saying? I, I mean, I, I'm I'm getting uh, emails from from all sorts of different people. Uh, some of whom uh, actually I've been attacked from both sides, which is probably a good thing. Uh, some people don't like the fact that I attack Al Gore. I, I wouldn't say I attack him. I just dispute uh, the things that he says because they're not in line with the scientific consensus. Um, some of his exaggerations, I've called him on it, and and I I see no reason not to do that. I'm I mean, my, the whole idea of having my video series is that it's about science. And whatever side you happen to feel you're on, and I don't like the idea that this is a question of taking sides, um, you know, if you're getting your facts wrong, you need to be called up on it. But I have had people who've, who've uh, criticized me for, for that. And I've also had people who've criticized me for taking the, the view that um, climate change is happening. But that's not my view. That is the view of the scientific consensus. What I'm doing in the series is explaining what scientists have discovered through research. Nothing more than that. This is not my opinion. This is just what's been show, shown through research. So that the emails that I'm getting um, cover a lot of... Uh, you know, all all manner of the spectrum. And yes, I have had people change their minds over this, which is a very good thing. That was Peter Hadfield speaking to Adam Vaughan from our environment site. If you want to take a look, search for Potholer54 on YouTube or read Peter's blog post on environmentguardian.co.uk. If you follow this podcast on Twitter, at Science Weekly, we'll let you know every time a new podcast is launched. 
And to be alerted to all the Guardian Science content, follow at Guardian Science. My thanks to our three studio guests, Jonathan Balcom, whose book Second Nature is out now, Peter Hadley and Tom Winty. Next week, Alok should be back, and he'll be sniffing around as Will Andrews tells us about the science of scent and how perfumes are designed. Don't forget to add your voice to our debate at guardian.co.uk slash scienceweekly. While you're there, make sure you subscribe for free, so every podcast gets automatically delivered to your MP3 device. Takes all the hard work out of listening. This podcast was produced by Andy Duckworth. I'm Nell Bowes. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.